This is Ye Old Dragons Library, the storytelling podcast. Here in Season 3, we're featuring the steampunk series, Guardians of the Time Stream. This is a chapter from the prequel story, Odessa Fremont. Ready for fun with fantastical fiction? Then let's begin. Chapter 20 Sutter was waiting when they came out from between two barns and approached the main house. The senior agent walked slowly up to the loading block where Stockwell brought the wagon to a stop. He snapped into a militarily precise salute and held his parade posture until Stockwell dropped the reins, turned around in the driver's box, and swung his legs over the side to slide down. He waved away the hand Sutter offered to balance him as he stepped down, so Sutter offered to help Jasmine. She still wasn't used to wearing full skirts. Granted, her newest dress was several inches too long and kept dragging and tripping her, but she had recovered her spirits enough by this time to enjoy playing the part of pretty but brainless chit. S had a hard time not laughing when Jasmine fluttered her eyelashes at Sutter and let out a trilling little giggle, and the man actually swallowed hard. One of these days, S knew she would have to give up and wear skirts, at least during daylight hours. She would have to learn all the tricks that women had been using for centuries to befuddle men's minds, simply to keep them from noticing her other less feminine activities. Common sense said to start practicing now, learning from Jasmine, who was certainly a good ten steps further down that road. Finally, it was S's turn to face Sutter and be greeted by him. There was something slightly satisfying about the way he searched her face when she dismounted and turned to face him. He had been concerned. She liked knowing there was someone in this world who worried about her. Don't be a silly nit, she scolded herself a moment later. Despite his failings, Yuli had to be thinking about her, feeling some guilt or worry. The same for her grandparents. They had the common sense not to be eaten up with guilt over whatever kept them from returning to her, but she knew they were worried. Still, it was nice having that particular concerned person actually in front of her, looking at her, visibly relaxing to see her on her feet. I don't know if I should be relieved you're not a mass of scars or worried, the agent said. That earned a squeak from Jasmine and a bark of laughter from Stockwell. You are not making that girl one of your couriers, the former circus owner said. Interestingly, most of his tone contained amusement, despite his attempt at a scowl and scolding. Hasn't she earned a rest? Courier, S said, instantly interested. What benefit would scars give me? Helping in your disguise. Sutter waved away the questions ready to spill off her tongue. Colonel, Miss Amber Crombie, he winked at Jasmine when she let out another squeak. Miss Fremont, S guessed that Amber Crombie was Jasmine and Stockwell's real name, since Sutter used her real name. Why don't we get all of you settled, and then have a war council over dinner? He gestured at the main house, which looked big enough to house the entire population of the academy, including the housekeeping staff and all the teachers. S was delighted to discover that the main house had the latest conveniences, including indoor plumbing. What a luxury to fill a tub with steaming hot water pumped up to her room on the third floor by pipes and know that no one had to haul the huge metal cans of water, even if just from a dumbwaiter at the end of the hall. 
even better. Opening a stopper in the bottom of the tub would let that water pour down another pipe. No chance of spilling the dirty water on the floor, and no one assigned to the messy, unpleasant task. While she relaxed in a tub full of thick, lemon-scented bubbles, she decided part of the reasoning for such luxury was to provide the ultimate privacy. There was no excuse for anyone to come into a room on errands. Sutter had announced that everything they would need had already been furnished in their rooms, so S. hadn't bothered to explore her room before taking advantage of the bath. When she got out, dripping and glowing and feeling truly warm and clean for the first time in what felt like months, she wrapped an enormous bath towel around herself and left footprints from the bathing room. Each room had its own bathing room and toileting closet to explore the wardrobe. To her amusement and satisfaction, Sutter had provided her with several suits of clothes, both male and female. What sort of message was the agent sending her by giving her a choice? Perhaps she was to give him a message by her choice? When she finished dressing, S. found someone had slid a folded piece of paper under the door. She picked it up and opened it, read the two short lines. With the growing howl of an incoming storm, she had no way of knowing if anyone had knocked when they brought the note, or how long the sender had been waiting for her response. She decided right then she would enjoy staying at the horse farm for as long as it was necessary. The note asked her to come downstairs and help with final preparations for dinner. There were no hired servants, for security purposes, so everyone who stayed at the farm was expected to help with chores. A strange pressure developed in her chest as she hurried to put on her boots and slide down the back stairs to the kitchen. S. missed helping Hilda in the kitchen at home, teasing with Peggotty. She had enjoyed running and fetching for her grandmother when Matilda took it into her head to experiment with the cuisine of other countries and cultures and create a feast. Jasmine had spent time helping in the cook tent at the circus, so she wasn't lost in the massive kitchen that was almost as large as the cooking tent. She had opted for trousers, just like S. Had Ashmore done the shopping for them? S. found she missed the agents who had become her friends during that short adventure in Springfield. What you need is someone you belong to, who won't go away or who you don't have to leave, Jasmine remarked, when S. confessed that thought to her during a short time they were alone in the kitchen. Collins had kitchen duty and two agents who were assigned long-term to the horse farm, named Denton and Kitchell, along with their wives. As soon as S. realized there were women on the farm, she revised her theory about who had provided their wardrobes. Mrs. Denton and Mrs. Kitchell were older ladies. She hadn't considered Secret Service agents being allowed to marry. Didn't they travel all over the country, constantly on the move? putting themselves in danger to protect the president and other government officials? How could they find women who would put up with constant absences? S. knew better than to ask such questions. At least, not until she had gotten to know the women better. She found them to be friendly, with good senses of humor. Maybe a woman married to a government agent had to have a good sense of humor, or suffer from constant nerves. The seven of them served up an enormous meal in no time. Jasmine had been assigned to set the table, and S. wondered what had taken her friends so long until they started ferrying the bowls and platters down the short hall to the dining room. Then she understood. The table was long enough to serve as a boarding school dinner table, with seating for at least 20 people. 
Jasmine was still pouring water into glasses when S came in, pulling a wheeled cart behind her. Someone had set off a signal, because the rest of the inhabitants of the farm came into the dining room and helped unload the carts. S noted the somber expressions on Stockwell's and Sutter's faces, and wondered what plans the men had been making. Sutter was likely in charge of Stockwell's and Jasmine's safety, perhaps creating new identities, finding them a new home and safe place to live. Would she have a new job waiting for her, as well? Dinner conversation was pleasant enough, with the inhabitants giving the newcomers an idea of the surrounding area, recommendations for a church to attend, amusements such as regular dancing parties, the largest lending library in the state, ladies' social clubs, reading clubs, and other activities. S. and Jasmine traded glances, and she could tell her friend was thinking the same thing. Getting involved in the social life around Lexington, making themselves familiar, becoming known faces, was not safe. Unless Sutter was planning on them settling here, it could be vital for their safety to become known and familiar, so they were part of the community and everyone would naturally look out for them. S. fought down the slowly growing sense of being trapped that tried to steal away her appetite. She could not, she would not, sit still in one place. She still hadn't found any clues to her brother's route when he had vanished from their home. As soon as the Pinkertons located Yuli, even if it was just a cold, fading trail, she had to be ready to move, to chase him down. She needed her brother. As the meal progressed, talk finally turned to plans for the future. S's theory was halfway correct. Stockwell and Jasmine would be staying at the horse farm to run it and create a stronger sense of identity and continuity for the people living in the surrounding area. With the rebuilding of the nation, people were moving back into the area. Families were reclaiming ancestral farms. Fields that had lain fallow for years were being planted. With the advent of airships for travel and for civilian purposes, rather than just military transport, aerial surveillance and security work, affluence was rising. People expected to see their neighbors more often than at social events, and they would notice if the faces at the horse farm changed too often. As of that night's dinner, Stockwell was Colonel Bramwell, and Jasmine was to be Jessica Bramwell. She was his great-niece, granddaughter of his brother, and their family had been wiped out in the influenza and cholera epidemics that had swept the country in the wake of the war. Stockwell would simply be known as the Colonel. He would be a Navy man who had lost his leg during an explosion of an ironclad in the early days of the war, soon after the South had fired on Fort Sumter. What about S? Jasmine Jessica asked, when her and her grandfather's new histories and identities had been thoroughly discussed and agreed upon. The Kitchells had made a quick trip into the kitchen for a lovely pudding made with dried fruit and mounds of sweetened whipping cream. Several agents actually looked around the table, evidently not knowing either S's real name or just the shortened version. The two girls traded grins. Odessa has earned some rest and recovery time, even though she is not officially a member of the Secret Service, Sutter said. I would like to employ you as a courier when you're ready to take to the road again. Totally your choice. What does a courier do? S asked, trying not to fidget when it seemed like every pair of eyes at the table focused on her. I know what the word means, but wouldn't airships or trains or even stagecoaches be faster, more secure? 
That's why a courier, especially one no one would suspect, works better, Collins said. There are some things we can't discuss by telegraph, and enemies of the country will be looking for official packets and agents who look and move like agents. They won't pay attention to a dirty boy who comes in the back door, S said, easily envisioning how she could get in and out of field offices. You'll do much of your traveling by horseback, or riding second- or third-class carriages, Sutter said. Speed isn't worth anything if security is compromised. You'll be taking reports to consolidation offices, then taking reports and evidence, photos, anything else necessary from those consolidation offices to central offices, whatever the agents you're reporting to need you to do. Sometimes they'll ask you to sneak around back alleys and hang outside windows. You still remember how to do that? A smile cracked his face for the first time. The only reliable law of our kind of work is long hours of boredom, broken by minutes of panic and life-threatening danger. You might spend an entire year simply carrying papers, and then one night uncover a resurrectionist plot to blow up Congress. He folded his arms and sat back. What do you think? It sounds like the same old thing she's been doing, Jasmine Jessica muttered, just loudly enough for everyone at the table to hear her. Sir, we all know what the child has accomplished, Mrs. Denton began. She may look like a child, especially with dirt on her face and ragged trousers, but Odessa is not a child. Our president greatly admires her and wishes he had a dozen plucky young ladies just like her to confound his enemies. Until the hide-bound traditionalists step down from power, the ones who believe the world will implode in fire and flood when women are allowed to think for themselves, we must proceed slowly, one talented young lady at a time, in disguise at the fringes. Despite his smile, the amusement in his voice, Sutter struck S as being unutterably tired. She suspected he had seen far too much in his short time of service. I'm in, S said, as long as you keep in mind that my first priority is, and always will be, finding my brother and our grandparents. My family comes first. As it should be, the newly renamed Colonel Bramwell said, nodding slowly. We've come to a break in the story. I'd like to take a moment to tell you about a book that you might be interested in reading. Looking for some space opera on the light side? Maybe something reminiscent of a certain groundbreaking TV show? You might enjoy the adventures of the AFV Defender, a starship with a growing reputation for misfit luck and adventures that puts her crew on the forefront of solving mysteries and problems in the Alliance. Book One, Friendly Fire, in which the Defender is infested with miniature dragons. Book Two, Here There Were Dragons, in which the Defender is sent on a diplomatic mission to a planet with dragons in their history. Book Three, Etrusca's Vow, Lieutenant Makar is sent home to Nisandros to face possible execution, or worse, diplomatic marriage. And coming this fall, Book Four, Inquest. Only one ship in the Alliance fleet has a reputation stranger than the Defender, and that's the Inquest, with her crew of rule-breakers and miracle workers. When the two ships are assigned to work together, the biggest question is which one will survive the mission. The AFV Defender series, Space Opera, from Ye Old Dragon Books. And now, back to the story. 
Their traveling party had reached the horse farm in February. S. stayed, watching her cuts and scars fade and helping the Bramwell set up their new lives, until the end of March. Then she set off on a sturdy two-year-old gelding to begin her courier duties. The latest report from the Pinkertons had yielded no progress on finding Yulie. It was as if her brother had vanished into thin air. Sometimes she fancied an airship had hovered over their house the night after the big ruckus in town, and people had come down on ropes, straight into her brother's bedroom, tying him up and hauling him away. No footprints, no sounds of people going down the stairs, no wagon tracks in the dust, no witnesses on the roads leading away. For all she knew, Ulysses Fremont hadn't put his feet on solid ground since that day. It was a ridiculous theory, but it was the best she could come up with. She supposed she was lucky that the Pinkertons had learned enough about Yulie's disagreement with strangers in town, and the resulting ruckus, to prove that he actually had existed at one time. Without that, they would have been justified in accusing her of sending them on a wild goose chase, or perhaps more accurately, a ghost hunt, chasing a figment of her imagination. S's only argument with Sutter had been over the telegram she had sent to the Philadelphia Pinkerton office, and Detective Horace Winslow, and then the packet of reports that came in the mail two weeks later. S. didn't want anyone to know, and Sutter demanded that she share everything. She felt like a fool when she finally, grudgingly, showed him the report and admitted she had the Pinkertons working for her, especially when Sutter apologized and seemed to be somewhat embarrassed. At least he hadn't been distrustful of her. He was concerned, rather than expecting her to get into trouble. The head agent even went above and beyond to make up to her for their argument by requesting information from the U.S.'s ambassadors to South America. He requested their honest assessments of the situation, their estimate of when it would be safe for United States citizens to travel, and if they had heard anything about Americans being stranded or in trouble. He specifically searched for word of any unusual activities or sightings in the area around the last known archaeological expedition camp led by Ernest and Matilda Fremont. The ambassadors and their assistants were very helpful. Unfortunately, much of the information they provided simply repeated everything S. had learned already about the situation. South America might be an unstable region of the world for another decade, maybe two. Revolutionaries had developed cannons to shoot down airships and had small fleets of their own to guard their borders and assault other nations or revolutionaries who didn't agree with them. The borders of various countries could change from week to week, depending on who was in power and who was able to assassinate today's leaders by tomorrow morning. Just before S. headed out on her first courier assignment, gathering up reports from six field offices along the Ohio River and delivering them to a paddle-wheeler traveling up and down the Mississippi, Sutter sent her one more, totally unexpected, present. He had asked the Secret Service office in Cleveland to be on the lookout for Hilda. The city was growing at an exponential rate, and there were many places where a widowed woman could find employment. There were any number of places where she could earn a living, cooking or doing laundry or looking after children. Construction sites needed cooks. Shelters for orphans needed house mothers, cooks, and laundresses. Charity shelters run by churches and mission organizations were still dealing with the emotional and mental debris resulting from the war. Plus, there was nothing about Hilda that would make her stand out in a crowd. 
There were literally thousands of squarely built, white-haired women with a slight European accent. S. knew very little about the arrangements that Hilda and Giles had made to keep in contact, and she knew even less about where she said she was going, who she was going to contact in Cleveland, only that they were friends of her grandparents. The only clue she had to track down these friends was what she had seen and overheard of the people who came to claim Darius's body. It was pitiful little, and definitely not enough for Sutter or the Pinkertons to even begin an investigation. Part of her wished Sutter hadn't tried, because it merely solidified what she had long suspected, until she found her brother, or her grandparents emerged from the chaos in South America, S. wouldn't find these alleged friends. Yet, when her grandparents returned, she would need to find those friends. She needed to head west, visit the places that she had heard Yuli talk about, the places he had dreamed of visiting. Somewhere along the road ahead of her, she would find someone who remembered her brother. Then she would have a starting point. She sent a note back to Sutter, thanking him, and promised to send a telegram once she had made her first delivery. If all went well, every time she made a delivery, a new assignment would be waiting for her. She would keep moving, keep in contact with the Secret Service, slip under the very noses of those who plotted against the United States of America, and have the support of people who could pull her bacon out of the fire if she ran into trouble. Other than her brother's location, what more could she want in life? Her third night out on the road, when she had to take shelter in the burned-out remains of a barn on a farm that had been abandoned since the war, S. had her answer. She had burrowed into a pile of moldy hay for warmth, feeling the spray from a fierce spring storm despite the body of her horse acting as a wall between her and the weather. Waking from a dream, for a few moments she had no idea where she was, what she was doing, and a whimper escaped her lips. Mama? S. caught her breath, startled at what she had said. Then, as she oriented herself to the present, instead of a child's sunny memories, she gave in and wept. What she wanted most in life was her parents. What she wanted most was to go back to childhood, and the ability to convince her parents not to leave on that archaeological expedition when she was seven. The expedition they had not returned from. If only it were possible to turn back the clock or the sundial, or whatever mechanism could control time, the ability to change time, walk her life path a second time, and retain enough memories to change what had happened nearly nine years ago. What wouldn't she give in exchange for that power? Her life would be entirely different from what she had now. As her tears dried, S. knew such wishing was a waste of time and energy. Still, it was a pleasant enough diversion. Perhaps she would save the concept to discuss with her grandfather some day. What would Ernest say about the idea of a machine that could change history? Would he approve? Or consider it yet another piece of evidence that all of humanity was becoming even more decadent, selfish, discontented, and lazy. Ernest and Matilda Fremont, even to regain the lives of their only son and his wife, would never condone such a mechanism. Oddly, S. found great comfort in such certainty. S. enjoyed her nomadic life. On her sixteenth birthday, she wore a dress and borrowed braids, indulged in a room in a fancy hotel, and pretended to be offended and afraid when a man in fancy dress and a thick Creole accent tried to attach himself to her. First, he approached her in the dining room, 
attempting to convince her that no, she most certainly did not want to dine alone. Then he insulted the waiter who came to her rescue, ordering the man to go away or he would soundly thrash him with his cane. Fortunately, S. had already finished her meal, though she did want to sample the desserts on the expansive menu. So when the bounder would not go away after being asked four times, she was free to get up and leave the room. Fortunately, there were several men in the dining room who were true gentlemen, because they intervened to stop the determined rogue from following her. At the very least, they listened to the women with them, who insisted they intervene. S. reached the first landing, heading for her room to hide and change into her boy clothes. Then she overheard the man loudly proclaim that she was his wife, and he had every right to follow her. When he demanded all three interfering men meet him for a duel at dawn, S. ran back downstairs. She pulled her derringer from her pocketbook. Several women screamed when she stepped into the dining room, leading with the gun. The bounder went white, and his eyes bulged. He stammered and shuddered, and couldn't come up with an answer when she challenged him to tell everyone her name. Surely he would know if she was indeed his wife. Several people laughed, and the owner of the hotel came charging into the dining room with two uniformed hotel workers. He changed his story then, insisting that while the young lady wasn't his wife, a young woman alone was looking for trouble and had no right to say no to a man who wanted to have some fun. The hotel owner apologized to S., to the offended ladies, and had the bounder escorted across the street to the sheriff's office. It was an interesting evening, and within a few weeks she was able to look back on the whole incident and laugh. However, that unpleasant encounter taught S. that unless she had a drastic, desperate need to masquerade as a woman to save her life, she would avoid skirts until it was absolutely impossible to pass herself off as a boy. No matter how enlightened society had become, especially as more philosophers and scholars declared women had the intelligence and the moral fortitude to participate in the process of government, a woman alone was still considered fair game for the predators of society. We're already at the end of today's chapter. I hope you enjoyed yourself and you're eagerly looking forward to the next episode of Ye Old Dragons Library.